Well, good morning. Welcome to the online weekend experience. Uh, glad you're with us. My name is Aiden, one of the pastors here at the Norton campus. Happy Palm Sunday to you as we kind of head into Holy Week. Uh, it's just an exciting time to kind of slow our hearts down and really focus in on what is the the linchpin for everything that we believe about God. I, uh, as we as we jump in today, I, I don't know if you log into different, sometimes you log into different websites, right? Maybe it's your banking account. Maybe it's, I don't know, Netflix, whatever. You log in different websites and you got your password, right? But sometimes you have these security questions, right? That you'll have to answer if you log in to remember it's you. Your mother's maiden name, which nobody could ever guess. You know, the street you grew up as a kid. One of the security questions I often see is, who's somebody famous that you would like to meet? Now, I would always write John Mayer. Somebody famous I would like to meet. John Mayer, if you're not sure who John Mayer is, you know, he's a singer-songwriter, came up in the 2000s, one of the best guitar players of all time, best songwriters of all time. That's not my opinion, that's the facts, right? Big John Mayer fan. Well, I want to tell you this, that's not one of my security answers anymore, because that question is, who would you like to meet? And I have indeed, at this point in my life, met John Mayer. Now, it's a long story, and I don't get into all the details, but I had a good friend, and we'd go on lots of adventures together, uh, my friend and, and I and other people. We'd go on all these adventures, and they would always, her and her family would love to meet famous people. So we would meet the Jonas Brothers, and we'd meet other pop stars, and we'd meet all kinds of people, and I was long for the ride on all these kinds of things. Well, one year, they're like, let's meet someone Aiden wants to meet. And so we found ourselves at the John Mayer concert. And long story short, I find myself at a John Mayer meet and greet, where I go in to meet John Mayer. Now, he's a tall man. He's a, he's a good-looking dude. And we walk in. He's very tall. And I walk in, and I see Mr. Mayer. And what I say to him sounds like this. I've been listening to this guy since I was in high school. Now I'm probably 27, 28 years old. And I look at him and I say, John Mayer, you know, when this album came out, I really like born and raised, I was on a road trip and it really connected with my life and where I was at my biggest album of all time. And I said something to sound like that. And he leans down and he looks at me and he says, what's that? <laughs> right? Like my whole life, I'm like, John Mayer, John Mayer. And I come up to him and I finally tell him how, his, how some of his songs and some of his albums changed my life and when they met me in my life. And I mumble it to him. And just like oftentimes you wonder, you say, what did he just say? Right? That was my interaction with John Mayer. I know his albums. I know his middle name. I know who he dated in the 2000s. I've been emotionally impacted by his work. And with all these things, at the end of the day, I don't know him. I know about him, right? Like, I don't know John Mayer. He doesn't know me. I just know about him, right? I'm not friends with him. I don't know the intricacies of his life. He doesn't know me. Pretty much what I know about him, anybody could find out by listening to his music and Googling him, right? I have no real relationship with Mr. Mayer, right? I'm not involved in his life. And the most that he knows about me at this point in his life is that I'm mumbling him from Ohio, right? Like, I, I know about him, but I don't actually know him. Now, for the past six weeks, we've been going through this, this series called God Is, right? We're going through uh, chapter 34, the book of Exodus, most quoted section of the Bible by the Bible, where God reveals to Moses in this moment uh, what he is like. He kind of gives us this, this description of who he is and what he's like. He says he's compassionate and he's slow to anger. He's, he's just. He doesn't leave sin undealt with, right? He's slow to anger. All, all these things, all these aspects of who he is, that on one hand... He's loving and compassionate, gracious, and at the same time, he's just, slow to anger, deals with sin. Now, I want you to walk with me for today, because we're jumping into somewhere new. 
if, if Exodus 34, if that section of the Old Testament, which I would encourage you to go back and listen to even just week one of that series to kind of get a framework for where we're at. If Exodus 34 is God giving a description of his character, then, then John 1, in the Gospel of John in the New Testament, in John 1, it's God showing up on the scene to give a full revelation of how God lives, of how he acts, of how he responds, and how he relates to us. Because what we see is that God who revealed himself, who described himself to Moses in 34, shows up on the scene in the New Testament as God. Merry Christmas, everybody. And this is what John 1 says. You may be familiar with this. It says, in the beginning was the word. It's Jesus. In the word was with God. In the word was God. We're going to swing back to that for the sake of today. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, verse 4 says. In that life was the light of all mankind. Then verse 18 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Literally means he set up his tabernacle among us. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel, God had to design this tabernacle, this traveling tent where his presence would dwell. And there's this whole sacrificial system on how they could enter his presence. And what we see here in verse 18 is that the word God became flesh and made his dwelling, built his tabernacle among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and full of truth. Underline that. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son, this is verse 18, who is himself God, we'll swing back to that, is in closest relationship with the father, has made him known, has made him known. I want to look at two things real fast. That just as in Exodus 34, God was full of compassion and grace and love and faithfulness. He was also full of of justice, right? Dealing with sin, slow to anger. That Jesus was lived in this tension, that he was full of grace and truth, not 50-50, 100% and 100%, full of grace and truth. But he has also made God known. What for the sake of today is the sake, for the sake of the series that we're going through, Jesus is the full explanation of God. I want to look at the implications of what that means today. That there's a guy named Scott Sauls who says everything Jesus said and did was a theological statement. Now, as the Gospel of John continues, we see in the life of in the miracles, and in the interaction of God. We see these things play out in the person of Jesus, right? In seven times, seven times throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus gives these pictures describing himself. He's describing God by saying, I am blank. You know, you saw this in the video. that He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I am the true vine. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. He says all these I am statements. And in all of these statements that he makes, Jesus, God in the flesh, God revealing himself, he's giving us a tangible picture of what he's like. He's not describing himself from far off, but almost at an intimate eye-to-eye level. He's describing his personality and his nature. And in all of these I am statements, they are inviting us to respond. Jesus is inviting us into deeper relationship, deeper understanding, deeper intimacy with God himself. Through Jesus, through Jesus, God is inviting us not just to know about him, but to know him. In these statements, he's not just saying, you know, here's some information on on kind of what I'm like for you to just simply understand and know. 
but to actually have relationship with him, not just to know about him, but to actually know him. And so for many of us, many of us, we know about God like I know about John Mayer, right? Like we have our favorite verses, we have some emotional moments with them, we believe that he exists, right? But we don't know him. We don't know him. And this is, this is in no way an examination of like how good of a person you are, or how much you've done for Jesus. But what we want to do is look at the invitation that Jesus gives us through these descriptions of God. Now, for the sake of today, what I want to do is I want to tie the Old Testament picture of God, say that in air quotes, to the person of Christ. Because oftentimes we read the Bible, we're like, God in the Old Testament, he was a little cranky, he's a little bit more ten in tune, he's got a lot of opinion about things, and then apparently he sent his son who, you know, went off to the university, kind of learned some helpful things on how to interact with people, now he shows up on the scene, right? And we kind of separate the two. What I want to do today, what I think Jesus says in this passage today, connects all of this together. It helps us see that the God of the Old Testament is revealed in Christ, that they are one in the same. And Jesus today makes a super weighty statement that may be one of the most simple and profound things he says about himself. And for the sake of today, for some of us, what Jesus says today is something we may already know. You may, you may already know this, but it may not be something that we, we truly believe, something we are aware of but hasn't penetrated our hearts. But this statement Jesus makes is not something we could just leave on the table. It calls us to respond, to either agree with or to disagree with. And first what I want to do is I want to jump uh, back to the book of Exodus, chapter 3. We kind of we kind of uh, stepped into this the first week of our God Is series, right? And I want to kind of swing back to this because it's going to connect everything together. And what we see in the story of Moses, right? Story of Moses, kind of get up to this point of Moses. Moses, God's people are, are God kind of comes through Abraham, develops his family. They are slaves in Egypt. They are under the rule of Pharaoh in Egypt. And Moses kind of grows up. He's an Israelite, but because of his circumstance, he grows up in the house of Pharaoh. So he's an Israelite who grows up as an Egyptian. Excellent. Kills the guys. He sees his people being oppressed, flees into the wilderness for a long time. And where we find Moses in Exodus chapter 3 is he is shepherding out in the field. He's hanging out in the field. And while he's shepherding, he sees a burning bush, right? And oftentimes we think about a burning bush, we think about like a little hedge, like a little rhododendron just sizzling over there, right? In my backyard, I have this whole wall of like I don't know, 12 or 15 foot tall bushes. I picture this, right? Like Moses just sees this bush engulfed in flame, but as he looks at it, he sees that it's not burning up. And look what happens. Moses thought, I will go over to the strange site. Why does the bush not burn up? I'm not sure I would do that. I think I would get my sheep and get on out of there, right? It's a little too creepy, a little too stranger things for me. When the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses, this is interesting. Moses says, here I am. Moses sees this burning bush and God calls to him from his fire. Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here I am. Moses takes his, God calls Moses to take his sandals off because he's on holy ground. God says, I am the God of your people, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I have heard the cries of my people. And I'm going to deliver my people. Pick up at verse 10. So now, Go, I am sending you, Moses, to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But look what Moses says to God. Look what he says. He says, who am I? His eyes kind of come inward. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. 
and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. And when you brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on the mountain. In Exodus 34, where God reveals himself to, to Moses, there's a whole kind of chain of events that happen. But the people of Israel are up to this mountain where God appears on this mountain as a storm, as a mighty storm, a lightning thunder. God is the God of this mountain showing up as a storm. And that's what he's telling them here. When you deliver them out, they will worship me on this mountain. But Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites. And I say to them, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he has sent me to you. And Moses says, what if they ask me, what if they ask me, what's his name? Moses says, what, what am I supposed to tell him, God? If I go and they say, well, who, what's his name? What am I supposed to tell him? Listen to what God says. God's response. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. That might sound like bad grammar, but this is so important. We looked at this a couple weeks ago, that when God says this, he's, he's saying his name. He's saying, I am. I am translates to this, this word Yahweh, oftentimes uh, spelled out just uh, W-H-Y-H, this Yahweh. Which when you read your Bible and you see the Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, that's, that's the word Yahweh being translated. That's his name, right? He says, I am. He doesn't say, tell them I was, that I've got a history. He doesn't just tell them I will be. He says, tell them I am. What he was saying, what God is saying is that I am the basis for reality. I am the uncreated one. I am the one who holds all things together. When you get to the end of what is fathomable, I am an eternity beyond it. Nothing caused me, but I am the cause of all existence, of the cosmos, of life itself. I am the ultimate truth, the ultimate beginning, and the ultimate end, the creator and sustainer of all. I am God. In these simple words, I am. God is defining himself as the basis of all things. When Moses says, who should I say this is? He's not a God. He's not a deity. He's not the God of the Babylonians. He's not the God who up until this point has led Israel. He's saying in a profound statement, I am. Do you feel the weight of it? Now, flip. We're going to go a couple thousand, or not thousand, hundreds of years into the future. We get to John chapter 8. We see Jesus on the scene. And Jesus is showing up and he's doing miracles. And he's 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 a Jewish carpenter from a small town. He's just a Jewish carpenter from a small town. He, he didn't, he's got a giant army with him. He's not the coolest looking person in the world, right? And he shows up on the scene in John 8. And he has a lot of conversations with the Pharisees, with other people, where he's making claims about himself. He's making statements about who he is. He's pushing back on the religious leaders at the time. And we, we see uh, this, this kind of playing out where in John chapter 8, it's a long chapter, we see him pushing on the, on the Pharisees, the religious leaders, kind of calls them demons. They say, Jesus has a demon. It's kind of this whole thing. And then in verse 51, Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. It's a big statement for a guy to make. At this, they exclaimed, now we know that you're demon possessed. They said Abraham, that's her father, Abraham, kind of the patriarch of their entire story, right? The, the, the father of their entire, their entire nation. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death? They say, are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. They say, who do you think you are? Who is this guy? 
Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. It's a humble statement for him to make. He says, my father, whom you claim is God, is the one who glorifies me. He's like, the God you worship, the God you're trying to bend your life to, he's the one who glorifies me. Though you don't know him, is what they say. These guys would have kept the law perfectly, is what they think. And Jesus is saying, you don't know him. You don't know God. But he says, I know him. If I said I didn't, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I obey his word. I'm in relationship with him. Your father Abraham, the one who, who began this whole family, he rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. Jesus is saying, Abraham, the patriarch, the one who God first interacted with and began this whole family, he would rejoice to know that I'm here. He would rejoice in this moment. And look, look what they said. They said, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. They're like, well, who is this guy? Jesus says, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, this guy's contentious moment, Jesus making some claims and this is how he reveals this. Before Abraham was born, I am. I am. Look at their response at this. They knew. Jesus wasn't just saying some bad grammar. They picked up stones to stone him because he was blaspheming the name of God. But Jesus slipped away. In this very simple statement, Jesus doesn't say, Hello, folks, I am God. He didn't didn't say it that way. But in this tension, as he is describing his relationship with God, as he's describing the weight of who he is, as he's saying, If you believe my word, you'll never see death. As Jesus is unveiling this, he looks at them and they're like, who are you? Who are you saying you are? Are you older than Abraham? Like a 30-year-old guy? Who do you think you are? And Jesus looks at them and he says, before Abraham was, I am invoking the all-powerful name of Yahweh. That at this point, the, the Israelites wouldn't even write down because they didn't want to take it in vain. That Jesus is invoking this name. For the sake of today, when Jesus says, when he says, I am the I am, when he says, I am, he is saying, I am God. He's not just saying I have a relationship with God. He's not saying we kind of know each other. He's not saying I'm better than you. He's saying I am him. Dropping the mic. It's like the way that a, that a hero would reveal himself in a movie. Wouldn't just say it, but in this very subtle way, he's dropping this hint that this is the guy. That when Jesus says, I am the I am, he's saying that everything you know about God is true about him. And when Jesus says, I am the I am, he's saying that when you see me, when you interact with me, when you see my nature and my character, you are in fact seeing with your own eyes the very heart of God. Now, oftentimes this is lost on us, that in our minds we're like, yes, Jesus is God, I get it, right? And we we talk about the Trinity, right? Which the Trinity, just allow it to blow your mind. Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son, they are all, they are not the same that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. They are separate, separate persons, but they are all God, one God. And oftentimes we separate them in our, in our, in our minds. And we separate them. That we, we, Jesus is the Son of God. And so we think that Jesus is less than God, right? But there's a, a couple things we got to grab onto, right? Does, does Jesus, when he comes as a man, does he set his glory aside and humble himself? Yes, Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, he does. Does Jesus submit to the Father? Yeah. Yeah. Does that mean that he's less than God? No. No. It does not. And for the, for the sake of today, this is, this is so important because I think we miss this. That I want you to think about this. That Jesus, and we're, 
I'm not going to the whole Trinity. It's only a 40-minute sermon today, right? I can only camp out here today. But for the sake of today, for the sake of Jesus, revealing that he is the I am, I want us to think about this and let our minds start to bend this way. That when we think of Jesus, when we think of Jesus, we have to begin to think of him as God. Because we think about God, well, in the beginning, God created. And so this, this being that we can't even fathom, that he, he created everything. He, he was in existence before anything else was. That's Jesus. We just read that in John 1, that he was with God. All things have been created through him. You know, Colossians 1 shows us this. He's the firstborn over all creation, that God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him, that everything has been created through him and for him, that he was present in the beginning, that Jesus is the creator, right? In the, in the book of Jude, we see in the Old Testament, we see God, Yahweh, leading his people out of Egypt and leading his people. We see he's the deliverer, right? And Jude tells us, read Jude uh, chapter 5, describes this this picture that Jesus was present in the deliverance of God's people. That Jesus didn't just show up on the scene 2,000 years ago for the first time, but he's been present the whole time. That Jesus is in himself Yahweh, that Jesus is the deliverer, right? That we see Matthew 28, before Jesus sends out the disciples, he says, all authority has been given to me. He's the ultimate authority. The ultimate reality is Christ. We see in the Old Testament, we see God splitting seas and prolonging days and doing all these natural things. And we see Jesus stopping storms. That Jesus is in control over nature. He's the Alpha. He's the Omega. That Jesus is God. You may struggle and be like, I'm not sure about God. I'm not sure who he is. I'm trying to figure out this whole thing. I've got a lot of questions. I would implore you. I would ask you the question, when you think about God, Whatever abstract concept you may have, do you think of Christ? Jesus is God. And at the same time, at the same time, if Jesus is God, we also, when we think of God, we have to begin to think of Jesus. Well, God's the old grumpy one in the Old Testament, and Jesus is the nice one in the New Testament. No, Jesus is God. He is the creator. He is the deliverer. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And at the same time, God, God is Christ. That when we think of God, That God is, is he compassionate? Yeah. How do we know that? Because Jesus was compassionate. That is, is God present in my life? Yeah. How do we know? Because Jesus was present with people and he has given us his spirit because the spirit is God. That Jesus says, take my yoke upon you for I am gentle and lowly of heart. Is God gentle? Yes. How do we know that? Because Jesus was. John 1 says that Jesus came to describe God. He explains God. That he is in himself God. We have to begin to grasp this. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. And when you consider the nature and the heart of Jesus, be assured that he is the creator God. He is the author. He's the God of Abraham. He is Yahweh, the one in the burning bush. He wrestled with Jacob. He's one who led the people out of Egypt. He was the pillar of fire, the cloud of smoke. Jesus didn't just show up on the scene a couple thousand years ago, but before the foundations of the earth, Jesus existed in perfect relationship with the Father and with the Spirit and he will reign and rule forever. Paul Zoll, an old pastor, says the prism, the prism through which all light concerning God is reflected in Jesus. The prism through which all light concerning God is reflected in Jesus. Everything that we think and know about God, let it, let it play through the filter of Jesus. Now, for the sake of today, I want to ask this question, what, like why does this matter? Because there's, there's, there's certain, there's certain uh, maybe b- religions that would say Jesus was good, but he wasn't God. 
And maybe for many of us, we're not sure what we think about Jesus. Was this a good teacher? Was he a prophet? Was he a good historical figure? For some of us, we would, we would believe the theological statement that Jesus was God. John 1, Colossians, all these things like, yep, Jesus was God. But, but in our hearts, we separate him. There's the Almighty and there's Jesus. There's the Creator and then there's Christ. There's the Alpha and the Omega and there's a carpenter from Nazareth. We separate them. And just what I want to do today is begin to bring these pieces back together. Why does this matter? There's many reasons that this matters. But for the sake of today, as we head into Holy Week specifically, I want to just double click on one thing. It matters because only God, only God can truly deal with our sin. This is why Jesus has to be God. It's only God who can have the final answer, give the, the, the ultimate solution for our sin and our separation from him. In Mark chapter 2, the Gospel of Mark, we see uh, Jesus is teaching in a house and it's packed full of people. And there are some guys and they have a friend who, who can't walk, he's paralyzed, he can't walk. And they, they can't get him into the room. It's sold out sold out house show that Jesus is doing. They can't get in there. And so what they do is they cut a hole in the roof. They cut a hole in the roof and they lower their friend down. And look at this in Mark uh, chapter 2. And when Jesus saw their faith, the faith of these men, they just wanted to get to Jesus. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. This guy wanted to walk. They didn't see Jesus been making people walk. They're like, let's get, let's get our friend to Jesus so Jesus can make him walk. And they lower him down and Jesus says, hello, your sins are forgiven. Maybe not the answer he was looking for. Now, some of the scribes, some of the religious leaders, they were sitting in the room and in their hearts, they questioned, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming against God. Who can forgive sins but God? That's a good question. That's a good question, right? If someone harms me, I can forgive them. If I harm them, they can forgive me. But I can't say, I, Pastor Aiden from Norton, Ohio, forgive the sins of the world. I can't do that. It's only God who can do that. Why? Because, because he is in and of himself. If there is a God, he is the standard of what is true, of what is good, and what is right. I'm not. I don't have that authority, right? And he's the only one who in and of himself is sinless. Only God can forgive sin. And this is why it's so crucial that Jesus was God. This is a little dense, but I want you to, to track with me on this. A, a pastor named Eric Raymond says this, There is no way, way any mere human could bear and fully satisfy God's wrath. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, right? God's wrath is a result of his love. By nature, God's wrath is of infinite quality, right? Because it's something that God possesses. His love, his compassion, his forgiveness, they're all infinite. And so is his wrath. In order to bear the weight of wrath, it's essential that the Savior be divine. But also, in order to satisfy this wrath, he has to offer a sacrifice of such value that God would be pleased to accept it. If God has infinite wrath and the way to atone for it and to deal with it is like, here's a buck 50, here's me trying to deal with my sin, it don't work. It's gotta be of infinite value. Only Christ as God, God himself could bring a sacrifice of infinite and eternal value. That God would perpetuate, that he would kind of deal with heaven's wrath, that it would, that it would, it would cover heaven's wrath. By virtue of his divine nature, he's able to earn for us eternal life and favor with God. What he is saying is that God, there's this infinite thing that needs to be satisfied. And the only way to satisfy this infinite need is to have a sacrifice that is in and of itself infinite. 
And the only way we have that is if God is on both sides of the equation. That's the only way we can deal with this is if God is on both sides of the equation. And this is a thread that we see all through scripture. We see all the way back to Abraham when God makes this initial promise with Abraham to bless him and to make all, to make all nations blessed through him. This ultimate promise God makes with himself, this covenant he makes with himself. That, that, God will, that Abraham will reap all the benefits, but that God will also take the punishment. That both sides of this promise are made in God. And that's what we see here at the cross. There is this old, this old example that I heard growing up. Maybe you've heard this. I don't even know if it's a true story. But as it tries to describe the cross, as it tries to describe God's heart for us and his, his, the sacrifice, there's a story of this old uh, train bridge manager guy, guy who runs this train bridge. He's the operator of this bridge. He raises the bridge so boats can go through and puts the bridge down so trains can go over. And one day he goes there with his son, show him all this stuff because every kid loves trains. And this, this kid goes down, he's playing by the bridge, kind of gets away from his father. But then his father sees that the train is coming and the father has to make a decision. Do I save all these people and kill my son? Or do I save my son and all these people die? And what happens is he puts the bridge down on his son and saves all these people. Now I get what this story's trying to do and maybe it's a true story, I don't know. But I think it's a faulty story for understanding of God because what this makes it sound like is that Jesus is this, this passive participant in the story of God's wrath. And God is so full of, of wrath, he has to deal with sin that he says, I'll send Jesus to absorb all this so I can deal with this, right? And what we miss in that story, what we miss in that is that Jesus is God. He's the one of infinite value. He's the only one of infinite power that can absorb this infinite debt and this infinite need. That the idea of the train conductor putting it down on his son is, is not the tightest picture. But it'd be the picture of the train conductor putting it down on himself. Because Jesus is God. He's not a passive bystander dealing with God's wrath. He is God. That he deals with it himself. I love a guy named Joshua Ryan Butler says the cross didn't happen the that the cross didn't happen to Jesus, but Jesus happened to the cross. It's God on both sides of the equation. It's God who is just. That we saw in Exodus 34, he has to deal with sin. He can't turn a blind eye to it. And he's full of truth. He deals with sin. He doesn't let the guilty go unpunished. And he's on that side of the equation. But on the other side of the equation is the God who's compassionate, who's forgiving, who in and of himself absorbs the consequence of our sin. It's all Jesus. You know why? Because Jesus is the great I am. He is God. Some old Scottish dudes uh, said this, uh, kind of some old Scottish uh, Protestants hundreds of years ago. They said, the full reality of Christ's deity, his godness, is essential for salvation. And it must be an act of God or else it is not salvation. If, if it's an act of just a good guy or a prophet or a good martyr, it's not salvation. Salvation has to come from God. Therefore, Christ has to be God. The deity of Christ tells us that the action of Jesus in the incarnation, that Jesus showing up on the scene as a person and Jesus getting nailed to a cross is identical with God's own action. It reveals the heart. When I think of God, I think of Jesus. And when I think of Jesus, I think of God. That the God who has the authority to judge me accepted my judgment for me. That the God who has the authority to condemn me was condemned in my place. The king who is the ruler became the slave who died for me. This story is too punk rock, ladies and gentlemen. Let this blow your mind today. 
Whatever your concept of God is, of the scriptures, of Christianity, throw out the manila folder and let it be bland. This is a story that is of infinite beauty and you can't make this stuff up. That it matters because Jesus is God, but what does it mean? What does it mean for us? Jesus is God. Wow. What does that mean for me? If Jesus is in fact God, if Jesus is Yahweh, the creator, the deliverer, the one of ultimate authority, the one of ultimate being, Jesus is in and of himself, the Alpha and the Omega, what does it mean? What does it mean? First thing I think it means is this. If, if, if Jesus is God, and that may be what you're wrestling with today, maybe flat out you're like, I'm not sure he is. Or maybe you're someone who's grown up in church your whole life, you know a bunch of Bible verses, you cried a couple times about this whole thing, but in your heart you know about him, but you don't know him. But if Jesus is God, his way of life, what Jesus taught and what he demonstrated and what he calls us into, it's not just a good idea but it's the right way to live. And now I'm aware that in our postmodern society, someone saying there is a right way feels a little jarring. And it would be jarring if Jesus was Oprah or if he was some great teacher, some great commander, if he was Gandhi or something. But if he's God, if, it's, if he's God, he's not just giving you his advice. He's showing you how the system works. He's like, I created this thing. This is how it works, right? I went uh, rabbit hunting a couple weeks ago. You want to know how many rabbits I caught? How many rabbits I shot? Well, I've, I've, I've met John Mayer more times than I've killed rabbits. So I got no rabbits, right? But I went rabbit hunting. It was a good experience. Went with my friend. It's like the only guy I've ever shot a gun with, right? And, and as we're going, you know, there's, there's five of us. We're staying at this, at this guy's hunting cabin, and we're out in the middle of nowhere, and we've got his guns, and I'm wearing his coveralls, and we're out in the place. And there's a couple of us who are kind of, you know, amateurs. I'm clearly the most amateur, obviously, usually situations I'm in. But he's going over. This is the gun. This is how you load the gun. This is how you hold the gun. This is what you do with the gun. This is what you don't do with the gun. And, and he's, he, basically, there's a right way to do this, and there's a wrong way to do this. And because this is his place, this is his gun, he's got experience in this, he was a Marine, all this stuff, that he is the authority on it. You know, I'm not going to be like, well, you know, I think we should do uh, this with the gun. No, there is a right way and a wrong way. Because he's the authority on it, right? Henry Ford created the car. Steve Jobs created the iPhone. The, like, if I, if I came to these situations, I'm like, you know, I think we can kind of do it this way. They'd be like, that's a cute idea, but I want you to know that it's wrong. The way that this car operates is the way that I created it to operate. The way that the iPhone works is the way that I made the iPhone to work. Like, I am the creator of it. So I didn't, like, have an opinion about it. I designed it for a certain way. Forgiveness, humility, sexual purity, the loving of our enemies, the, uh, the self-giving nature, self-denial, living with an eternal perspective, valuing life, seeing the meek, the mourning, and the merciful as the ones who are truly blessed, caring for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner. If Jesus is God, these aren't good ideas from a high-profile sage. They are blueprints for what life in life abundant truly are, straight from the desk of the one who created us and holds all authority. They're not just good ideas, but they're how humans were made to operate. They are, it is the way that we embrace life in life abundant. 
If he is God, if Jesus is the I am, he has some things to say about how I live, about my decisions, about what I do with my money, about how I see people. Not only because he's just the authority on it. When we were shooting guns, like my friend, like he's the authority on the situation. But he also wants us to have a good weekend because he, this is going to be fun, right? God is not the authority because he's the authority, but because he is the authority because he cares for us. And he has created this and he has experienced life as one of us. He himself became human and demonstrates what it looks like to actually live the human life. Because you know what? Our history, it's not been going great. As we fight each other, and as we embrace pride, and as we're dominant, and as we try to do things our way, it's, it's not going great. But these ways that Jesus has taught us to live, that has demonstrated, that has called us into life, are, are the right way to live because it leads to life and life abundant. If he is God, they're not just suggestions, but they're the aim about what life truly is. And with that, if Jesus is the I am, Either, either he is or I am, but we cannot have both. We can't have both. Tim Keller says, if you go to Barnes and Noble for a lecture and someone is there to talk about the principles of something, but they end up saying, I am the ground of all being. I'm the eternal creator of everything. I'm the ultimate reality. I'm the uncaused one. I hold the universe together and I will decide your eternal destiny. You don't leave and say, what a great teacher, interesting stories, great insights for living. No. He says, you either say we have been in the presence of God or you say that person is deranged or demonic. He says there's no middle ground. He doesn't leave that option open. Either Jesus is the I am or I am. And this is what I mean. In in traditional cultures throughout history and time, sometimes maybe the family, maybe the family was the center of society. I found my identity and my being and my reality in the family. Maybe I found that in the state, right? Maybe I found that in my tribe. Maybe I found that in my religion. But in the West, kind of in our society, we know this to be true. The ultimate authority is in us. It, it's, it's what I say. It's what I do, right? I define who I am by my choices, by my career path, by my success, by the way I dress and present myself, by my sexuality, by my skills, by my emotions, my desires, my feelings. We are the gods that create our own reality, right? And it's just important for us to grab a hold of. That has not always been the case. It isn't the case in all cultures and societies right now, and it won't always be the case in all societies and cultures forever, right? But in the moment we find ourselves in, we become the ultimate authority, which is what the original lie in Genesis 3 was. You can be like God. You can call the shots. You can decide what is true, what is not true. You can decide what is good, what is not good. You can decide what is right, what is not right. That you can decide for yourself. But either, either we, that authority, that knowledge, that either exists in Jesus, who claims to be the I am, or in my self-will, in my self-identity, and I decide that I'm the I am, and I decide all these things. It cannot be both. But the invitation that Jesus gives us in the Gospels, what he's revealing through these I am statements, is for us to to surrender, to humble ourselves and respond to his invitation to enter into relationship with him. As long as we hold on to the reins, we say, I'm going to define myself. I'm going to define what is good. I'm going to define what is right. I'm going to create my own reality because I am the I am. As long as I hold those reins, I am not going to live into the goodness of what Jesus is calling us to. 
And Jesus is gentle and humble in heart. He's not going to force us to. But he invites us into this relationship. Invites us to enter him. And as Jesus is the I am, he doesn't say, now that I'm in control, do what I say. But he invites us into this relationship to be his ambassadors, to be his friends, to be conformed into his image. It goes from this opposition, this wrestle into this, into this joy-giving submission as we follow him, as we don't just know about him, but as we get to actually know him and live in relationship with him. I don't know where you're all at. Maybe you're someone who's not sure what you believe about God, but I would challenge you as you wrestle with this idea of God, as you wrestle with the concept of God, maybe there's things in the Bible that you wrestle with, social issues, hell, some of the Old Testament pictures of God, maybe you wrestle with these things, that's okay. But I would encourage you, I would ask you, are you wrestling with Jesus? Because Jesus is God. He has revealed God, that God is not just an abstract concept that we read in a book, but he showed up as a Jewish carpenter in the backwoods of Israel, and he ate, and he laughed, and he had a relationship, and he demonstrated through his miracles, through his teachings, and through his life who God is and what God is like. God does not command from far off, but he invites at eye level right here with us. And I would invite you, as we go through these I am statements, to, to not just see them as some things that a deity says about himself in some cute pictures, but to see them as God inviting you into relationship with him as Jesus explains the heart of God. And if you're a believer, if you're someone who says, I follow Jesus, I, I would just challenge you. Do you know about him? Or do you actually know him? My whole, my whole life, you, you grow up and the invitation is always to have this personal relationship with Jesus. To invite Jesus into your heart and have a personal relationship with Jesus. And for the thousand times that we have said that, I'm not always sure that we know exactly what that looks like. And I know this because we all wrestle with prayer. We all wrestle with trusting what he taught. We all wrestle with, with prioritizing him in our life. Spending time with him. Sitting at his feet in silence getting to know him in his word and letting the spirit lead us into all truth. We wrestle with these things. We all do. We have to wrestle with the fact, do I just know about him or do I know Christ? Because the heart of Paul, what Paul says in Philippians, he says, I want to know Christ. I want to relate to him in his sufferings is what Paul says. I want to suffer with Christ that I might know him in a more intimate level. And if you're like, I don't, Aiden, I want that. Where does that start? This is where I'd encourage you to start. Simple. In Exodus 3, when that bush is on fire and God calls to Moses from the bush, what Moses says, he says, here I am. And we see this several times throughout. See, the prophets throughout the Old Testament oftentimes say, here I am. Jesus, here I am with my questions. Here I am with things I'm not sure about. Jesus, I I don't want to just know about you. I want to know you. What does that look like, Jesus? Here I am. Meet me here. I would start there. Here I am, Lord. Help me to know you. Because you in Christ have made yourself known to me. Jesus, I pray as we walk through these statements that you give us, that you are the light of the world, the bread of life, the way, the truth, the life, the resurrection of the life, the true vine, that you are the good shepherd. All these pictures you give us, Jesus. For those of us that have been around church for a long time, have heard all these things said, I pray that we would see these things as the God, the creator God, 
the Alpha and the Omega, that we would see these things as him in Christ inviting us into relationship, inviting us into deeper faith, inviting us into understanding, inviting us into action. That we would taste and see that you are good. Jesus, we love you. Lead us in this path not to just know about you, but to know you. It's because of Christ we pray. Amen.